Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 143. Rich Kimball here along with Kerry Haskell. And we're brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, you know, we love talking with authors uh, on the podcast and on our radio show downtown, which airs every weekday from 4 to 6 Eastern time on WZON Bangor, Maine, the WZONAM.com, downtownwithrichkimble.com, the WZON app as well. We've got a couple of terrific authors for you this week on the program with very interesting books. A little later, Ron Lieber, the Your Money columnist for the New York Times, talks about college and the cost of college for not just students, but families. His new book is The Price You Pay for College. And we'll talk about that and ask some questions of Ron. But first up, though, a regular on our program, she comes back to talk about her latest book. Uh, Annie Jacobson is a Pulitzer Prize finalist and has written wonderful books like Area 51, Phenomena, Surprise, Kill, Vanish. Her newest is First Platoon, a story of modern war in the age of identity dominance, and uh, opens up quite a window into what's been going on in Afghanistan, the work that's being done there on biometrics, the implications it has for the military, but also for all of us as we share that information and wondering where that information will go and who will have access to it. And so here's Annie Jacobson on Downtown, the podcast. Annie, thanks for being with us again. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, I, I love all of your books so much. And every time I say, why do I do this to myself? Because I read your books and then I just can't stop thinking about them for hours on end. And then this one I have not been able to get out of my head. It's a it's a, a fascinating and at times horrifying tale. Was it your research for Surprise, Kill, Vanish that piqued your interest in biometrics and their implications? You know, it was because I was writing about CIA paramilitary operators in Surprise, Kill, Vanish. These are like former Delta, SEAL, you know, tier one operators with decades of experience going into the war theater, most of whom are sort of in their, you know, the average age is 40, let's say. And what they do in the in the theater is so different than what these young straight out of college, 18, 19-year-old private first class were doing in the war theater in Afghanistan. And and what they were doing was just so astonishing to me. They didn't even know that they were part of this program to capture biometrics. And the whole sort of setup to that was just sort of like head-twisting in a number of ways. And, you know, you said you kind of were frightened reading the book. My God, that was my experience writing it. It was like, what path we wrought. It was very interesting, too, as you, you sort of traced the history of recognition techniques from, I believe it was with the Bertillon system, to, of course, fingerprints, mug shots, facial recognition technology, and, and now this, and, and what's called BAT, the Biometric Automated Toolset. Can you explain how that all works? Yes, yes. I mean, there are two stories in First Platoon. The one is, of course, this story of these very young soldiers who go to Afghanistan, 
their deployment ends in catastrophe. They're ensnared in a war crime, which they really had nothing to do with. And that's just a like story number one. But story number two that entwines around this is the sort of birth and rise, like frightening rise, of the Defense Department's biometric systems, this idea that it wants to build the most powerful database in the world of human measurements, fingerprints, facial images, iris scans, DNA, in order to tag, track, and then locate people who are not yet criminals, who are not yet terrorists. And that is frightening when you consider that this system born of war, is now here in the United States looking at a lot of us as well. Was the impetus for this uh, biometric use the effort to capture the man known as the 20th 9-11 hijacker? That's right. That's And it's such a remarkable origin story, and it has this feeling of like, wow, you know, the uh, the original ideas of some of these programs are often, you know, somewhat that you could say they were a good idea. I the biometrics of the 20th hijacker were located by the Defense Department simply because an FBI agent, a really sharp, dedicated FBI agent named Paul Shannon, who I, whose story I tell in the book and I, who I interviewed at length, comes up with this idea right after 9/11, saying to the, you know, taking his FBI experiment experience capturing fingerprints and saying to the DOD, hey, we need to get the fingerprints on all these sort of mysterious men fleeing the battlefield in Afghanistan. This is like in the early, early days right after 9-11. And it was such a noble idea. And he gets the fingerprints, and it's a literally a one in six and a half billion person match hit he finds the 20th hijacker from his fingerprints. And so that sets off this idea of, oh, my God, this could change how we fight wars. We could move from looking at big armies, this is we, the Pentagon, from like watching an entire army to honing in on one individual. And if we could stop that individual, maybe we could stop the next terror attack and therefore stop the next war. What a noble idea. It all goes to hell in a handbasket. And the military and the Pentagon launched this gigantic plan to, well, essentially scan everybody in Afghanistan. And it was not an easy process. And uh, I was taken aback to learn that they would even do it with people who had been killed. That's right. And this is actually what the young soldiers of 1st Platoon and thousands of others like them were doing in Afghanistan, having no idea what they were doing or why they were doing it. I mean, as recently as last year, when I'm interviewing these guys, they're saying, Annie, biometrics, what? That was just such a tiny part of the program. Well, it wasn't, I learned, and as I report, that in fact, the Defense Department had this big plan to get biometrics on everyone. The goal was 80% of the entire population of Afghanistan. Forget about Fourth Amendment rights of, you know, of of right to privacy. They just had these soldiers out getting fingerprints, getting iris scans, getting DNA off of everybody, including, as you say, you know, dead people. We're talking with Annie Jacobson here on Downtown. Uh, There were mistakes along the way uh, by the military. One that stands out early in the book is the uh, incident where copies of the Koran were burned. 
I mean, there are so many tragic elements of this story and missteps, and the the Quran burning is one of them. And the reason why I reported that story in the book was because it was such a sort of tragic example of what I what I always look at when I'm reporting it, which is a kind of fate and circumstance that befalls some of the people that I write about that I'm so interested in. And that was certainly the case with the young soldiers of First Platoon. They arrive in Afghanistan and within days the Koran burnings happen. And it con it's like a it's like an incendiary moment where you realize things are now going to get even worse for these kind of unwitting soldiers who are there on the ground, not to fight wars in any kind of sense that we used to know about fighting wars, but capturing biometrics, you're acting like cops on a beat, going around, sort of knocking on the door, hey, can I get your iris scanned? Absolutely, as one soldier said to me, do not want us there. And these, the Koran and another terrible situation that happens, which is the massacre of 16 Afghan civilians by an army soldier named Robert Bales who went rogue. These kind of horrors to the people living there made it almost impossible for our young American soldiers to function. And yet, this is what was going on. What is the bigger problem? That's always what I'm interested in. Why is this happening? And ultimately, why is no one in America know about this? The program wasn't secret. It wasn't a classified program. But it sure was secretive. For the young men of First Platoon, things changed dramatically when Clint Lawrence took over command. And and this was uh, this was a guy who had never, I, I believe, if I remember, right, had never seen battle before until he joined First Platoon. That's right. And again, there's that fate and circumstance. I mean, who are these young soldiers of First Platoon fighting, if you can even call it that, honorably, as honorably as they can? Their first lieutenant gets gravely injured in an IED attack, and management, bureaucracy, in, you know, in its infinite non-wisdom, puts into place a young first lieutenant named Clint Lawrence who has no experience. He spent his entire deployment inside an air-conditioned tactical operations center. And suddenly he's now in one of the most volatile areas of Afghanistan, trying to lead this platoon of young boys who have literally been sort of surviving. And it just goes to hell in a handbasket. He is very unequipped to be there. He goes rogue, in essence, and orders his soldiers to fire on unarmed civilians. And in the military, it's all about discipline. You do what you're told. And this just blows up into this terrible war crime. Ultimately, First Lieutenant Lawrence is convicted of murder, sent to Leavenworth, and then not to give away the plot twist of First Platoon, but, you know, he ends up getting out of prison because of a bogus pardon by President Trump. And when I say bogus, I mean biometrics, that big, unknowable system that I spent the book writing about, is actually used in a kind of house of cards way to manipulate the president into thinking something true, something false is something true. Well, and media played a role in that because, as you point out, uh, a key step to leading the president toward that pardon and to even trying to change the narrative about what happened uh, with, with Clint Lawrence was the Sean Hannity interview on Fox. That's right. And I think one of the great, greatest, most distressing 
thrills to me about, about First Platoon and about all the books I write, because I do write about the military and intelligence community, is that, and we see this more so than ever today, is this idea that somehow uh, the Republican Party, or the right, if you will, is somehow the great supporter of the, of the military, of the veterans, and the left, the Democrats, are, are not. And I find that is very dangerous presumption. And yet in this situation, you see that. You see all the Sean Hannity types, the Fox, Wing, the Fox newscasters leaping to the defense of a first lieutenant they, they don't know anything about, and they kind of get on board and drum up all this support for someone who was not at all what was, what was reported by Fox News. One of the things that makes the book so very compelling are the young people that you write about in the book and, and the circumstances that they encountered from Samuel Wally. And I, and I don't want to give away much of the book, but but particularly the story of James Twist. And it was heartbreaking for me reading it. I, I can't imagine what it must have been like for you after getting to know these young people. You know, there it's a story about identity, about human identity. It's true for each of us. Like, what is our journey in life? Where do we wind up? What do we make of the circumstances that befall us? And the boys, men, share their stories with me. And I'm learning all about them as individuals, like that quest for identity. And it's juxtaposed with this very cold, scientific, technological quest by the Defense Department to gather identity, to gather identification of people. And I found the way in which those two ideas interplayed, it was, like you say, it was like really upsetting at times because of the extraordinary sacrifices these guys make in Afghanistan and the, the stain and the, and the trauma that comes home with many of them when they return to an America that seems not to be interested or even understanding of what it was that they did or why they were there. There were a couple of quotes that stand out for me from the book, one from Bill Carney who said, biometrics is not an exact science. And then there was the other statement that fingerprints don't lie, but people do. And that's right. And that's really the great tragedy at the end of this because when President Trump pardons the war criminal Clint Lawrence based on bogus biometric information, it really boils down exactly to that. You know, Bill Carney said biometrics is not an exact science, and he's absolutely incorrect. Biometrics is an exact science. The liars in the situation are the humans. The whole other story on top of what happened in Afghanistan and the people there is the implications for the rest of us as this technology is out there and and we are very uninformed about what's happening. You point out the number of, of cameras, the number of visuals that exist on all of us, all of us in, in America and the world, and who has access and who controls that technology is to me very frightening. You know, the big data systems that you're referring to, this idea of like, okay, we need to catalog everyone so that we know who is who, when, so that when a crime occurs, we can figure out who's responsible. That's kind of the fundamental beneath bio. But 
of this is perhaps the the post 9-11 willingness of people to give up on some of their privacy rights, believing that it might make them live in a safer world? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with that question, because that is, of course, like the basis of a Western democracy, this idea of the social contract, hundreds of years old, you know, okay, so I'm a member of society, what rights am I willing to give up so that we can all kind of live, you know, in under democratic law? And so, yes, in theory, we, we want to be able to work with technology, work with this idea of the rule of law. But on the other hand, we're seeing right now in particular, at least I certainly am, this idea of the rule of law being sort of hijacked and mm-hmm. manipulated and twisted into a some kind of a political something, when in fact, it's, when you really think about it, Western society is that we actually behave according to rules and laws. I, I wonder, too, when I think of how much uh, some of the, the people in positions of power in Congress struggled to understand how social media even works, are those decision makers able to grasp and are they concerned about the implications of bio- biometrics? Absolutely they are and they should be. And I mean, you know, conservative justice now who's now passed, um, Antonin Scalia brought this issue up in the highest court of land, the Supreme Court in 2013 when he spoke of his fear that America could become what he called a genetic panopticon. The panopticon being this idea of, like, you know, a surveillance system that's watching all of us. Speaking to a, a case called Maryland versus King, whereby uh, it came to bear of whether or not someone who was suspected of a crime should have his DNA, a cheek swab of his DNA taken. Um, and, and the idea was if you 
didn't have specific probable cause, could you just do that at, say, a routine traffic stop? And that's exactly the kind of things that I think people need to be thinking about um, when they're when we're thinking about biometrics. But of course, in this incredibly fast-moving world that we live in, you know, again, who is actually keeping track of those of how fast that system is moving forward, and how can the courts possibly keep up with it? The book is First Platoon, a story of modern war in the age of identity dominance. As always, incredibly well-researched and an absolutely fascinating and I think must-read uh, for people from Annie Jacobson. Annie, uh, it's great to have you back on the show. Thank you, as always, for making some time for us, and uh, we wish you well. Keep on doing what you do. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Annie Jacobson, her new book, First Platoon, a story of modern war in the age of identity dominance. We'll take a break for this word from Cross Insurance and come back with Ron Lieber next. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Stats out of the podcast. Our next guest is the Your Money columnist for the New York Times and the author of a number of books, including The Opposite of Spoiled. His newest is entitled The Price You Pay for College. Very interesting conversation with Ron Lieber. This is such an important issue and one that everybody who's got kids deals with at some point along the way. Well, let's start with the basics, Ron. How much money are we talking about for the average college education and why does it cost that much? Well, it depends on whether you're going to a state school or a private college or university. Now, the average for state schools, after any and all discounts, as low as about $4,000 per year. That's tuition only, right? The room and board is going to be poor. Um, but it is totally possible in some states to pay over $30,000 at the retail price, uh, all in at a state school. With private colleges and universities, you're looking at roughly $29,000 a year uh, after all discounts, um, and the average discount at such universities is about 50% from the retail price. But, right, if you go to Colby, if you go to Bates, if you go to Bowdoin, if you don't get any need-based financial aid at those schools, you could pay over $75,000 a year. So much depends on where you are, and the price is so high at the state institutions, it's grown as much as it has, because state legislatures don't subsidize the schools the way they used to. Private colleges and universities have more administrators than they used to, but this is not necessarily bad, right? If we want our disabled kids, our kids with mental health issues, our first-generation kids to get to and through school, if we want the computer networks working, if we want a good career office, a mental health counseling center, these things do not come cheaply, and we might not like it if we had less of it. How do the schools determine what the cost is going to be? Well, there is the list price, and then there are the discounts. <laughs> right. right? The, uh, 
So let's start with the public side. On the public side, it's often the state legislature or, or other appointed officials who have some role in, in setting, the, setting the price. Uh, you know, the privates do whatever they want, and they're usually looking to see what peer institutions do. Well, thinking hard about, um, you know, not raising it to the moon such that people would blanch. But, uh, you know, when I was sitting down with the president of Bowdoin College uh, uh, summer ago, uh, you know, he's uh, on the board of the Bank of Bank of America, right? So he's no slouch when it comes to finance and economics. He just sort of said to me, yeah, I said, I, I think this place will probably cost $100,000 a year in, you know, eight or nine years. So, you know, they don't seem to have reached the kind of natural feeling of, uh, of what it can cost. But then there are the discounts. There are discounts based on your financial need. And then there's this so-called merit aid, uh, which has more to do with who you are, right? Your grades, your SAT scores, maybe leadership skills or other qualities. And depending on how hard up a school is for income or how hard it's trying to compete against the school down the road, they may offer you ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 off of that inflated list price to try to get you to say yes. We're talking with uh, Ron Lieber. His book is called The Price You Pay for College. I- I'm a high school teacher, and-, and I know firsthand that no no one word brings a shudder to parents like FAFSA. When did this whole process of, of trying to figure out financing get so complicated? Well, that form has been a giant pain in the rear end of family for decades. Now, I mean, I well remember, I'm aging myself now, you know, back in the day when it was known as the FAF form, <laughs> we were so confused as financial aid applicants uh, back in uh, back in the old country of Chicago, where I come from. Um, we actually uh, went and found a, an advisor, a consultant, you know, paid him 50 bucks cash on the barrel to kind of explain it all to us and explain, uh, you know, where um, we could not exaggerate, right, but where it was possible to you know, change up our finances such that, uh, you know, it might help our cause with the financial aid overlords. And, you know, it hasn't gotten any easier, but, but, and this is a big but, uh, a law just passed, uh, you know, a month or two ago that's going to change some of this and simplify the FAFSA and, you know, reduce its size by about two-thirds. This is something that uh, uh, various advocates have been trying to push for years now, and it is going to get easier in the 2022-23 school year, and thank goodness for that. Well, as you point out, it is the, the biggest financial decision that most families will ever make. So are there any questions you shouldn't answer? Why why don't you have the right to find out all the particulars of the school you're considering, including who teaches the classes, how many students in a class, and, and really everything about it? It ought, to, it ought to be more important than the questions you ask when you buy a new car. Well, that's exactly it, right? I mean, think about how educated many of us are when we go shopping for a vehicle at a five-figure price. Or we go shopping for a a mobile phone plan or a mobile phone at a a three-figure price. You know, we do hours of work thinking about this. But for whatever reason, we have come as a group of Americans to see ourselves as sort of supplicants in this process where, you know, we're handing over our sheets of paper or our digital applications and just sort of crossing our fingers and praying that um, these institutions will bestow their largesse on us in the way of an acceptance letter and not treating it like the consumer decision that it is, right? If it's possible to spend up to or more than $300,000 on this thing, it pays literally to ask a bunch of really pointed questions. 
uh, about what is worth paying extra for in what circumstances for what kind of child. And, you know, the schools at this point, uh, you know, don't offer enough data, enough proof of their value. And I just feel like it's high time that we all ask better questions. Ron, what do you mean in the book when you talk about uh, listening or ignoring your inner snob? Well, here's one of the big problems here, right? Um, This is maybe the thorniest personal finance question that I have ever dealt with as a trained professional personal finance columnist, right? I've been doing this at the New York Times for more than a decade. I did it at the Wall Street Journal for five years. I learned from some of the very best people in the business, and I'm lucky enough to get to talk to some of the smartest people in the world on the topic. But this thing, this thing is rough, right? Because it's really expensive. The, the pricing and discounting system is opaque and confusing and it involves a ton of emotions. Why does it involve a ton of emotions? Because it involves our children, and we, and we are prone to make emotional decisions uh, and engage in emotional decision-making when our kids are involved. So what emotions are we talking about? Well, we're talking about fear, right? Fear of them tumbling down the social class ladder if they make the wrong choices. We're talking about guilt maybe that we don't earn enough or that we haven't saved enough, we can't do enough to get them to their first choice school. And then Yes, um, snobbery, elitism, all of the factors that come into play when we're worried that, uh, you know, our son or daughter may want to make a choice that either won't look good to some future or employer or that, you know, we don't feel like is, uh, you know, a, a, a good enough goal star for us and, and, and our parenting, right? Um, and, so, uh, and so we make judgments you know, about the places they may be interested in or the places we think that they may want to, quote-unquote, settle for without necessarily thinking both about what is the best fit for the kid, what would make them happiest, um, and also what is most reasonable financially. Parents will come up with a lot of unique strategies to try and save as much as they can in the process, and it could be uh, starting at a community college uh, or a state school and then looking to transfer later on. Uh, It could be trying to parlay time in the military to free tuition, but you point out not all of these end up saving money in the long run. Yeah, so all of part four of my book deals with these hacks and, and tricks and um, you know ways in which you may be tempted to save money, and every single one of them can work wonders, but they all have limitations, right? If you want to start a community college, that is a great idea, uh, but only, uh, you know, let's call it 15% of people who start a community college get a bachelor's degree within six years. Now, you may think that your kid is above average, but you need to have a serious plan in place with an advisor at the community college, an advisor at the intended institution, and a clear sense of which credits are going to be necessary to transfer into what degree program that they might be interested at the transfer destination. And the same kind of vigilance is necessary, you know, if you think you're going to get a good deal at an honors college or an honors program at a state university. Turns out a lot of kids drop out of those honors programs for a variety of reasons. If you want to go to school outside the United States, you know, go up to McGill in Canada or over to St. Andrews in England, that's a great idea in theory. Right, but a lot of those places don't have dorms for first-year students, or they don't have cafeterias, or the internship programs don't help you get a job in the states. Right, these are all things that we need to think about. And again, we're just not asking good enough questions, in part because the system is so complicated, and busy parents don't have time to learn it. So I tried to learn it 
for them. <laughs> We've got a wonderful program here in the state of Maine that started by a, a businessman, Harold Alfond, and his uh, family and foundation. The Alfond Scholarship offers $500 to every child born in the state of Maine. And uh, we've got a seven-year-old. We were happy to sign up for that and then and then continue to add to it. It's stunning to me how many families don't take advantage of it, and, and maybe they feel they've got time. So I ask you, when should you start saving money for that college education? In utero or, you know, <laughs> when you sign the adoption papers. I, I mean, just it's, right, it's, 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 it's sort of basic math. But not everybody is, is taught how to do this math. It just has to do with, you know, what's known in the investment world as compound interest, right? The more you save and the earlier you save it, the longer the money has to grow on itself, right? So you know, if you get a couple good stock market years, those first couple of years of the kid's life, all of a sudden, instead of 500 bucks, you know, you've got uh, 700 bucks, right? And then, um, and then that money just kind of, that extra $200 that you've won in the market just continues to kind of grow on itself. And the more you're able to add, the sooner, the better, right? Now, I make no judgments about people who don't do it or certainly people who can't because they're busy paying off their own student loans when their first child is born. But, you know, save as much as you reasonably can. I have never run into anyone who regretted doing so. All right. At some point, you've got to talk to your son or daughter about uh, the implications and the costs of college. When's when's the right time to do that? And how important is it to lay it out for them uh, in, in a way that they understand the financial commitment? Well, this is a tricky issue because there are all these systems at work, including the so-called merit aid discounting system that, you know, has to do with your grades, and your SAT scores, and your leadership skills. And, and, and that system, that merit aid system, depends on your high school record. So, you know, I believe in, in telling kids the truth. I, I believe the kids can handle the truth. And I, I believe there's a gentle way to explain to them that their high school grades may be worth, you know, $100,000 in discounts uh, at a private institution uh, by the time they're done. Because if we don't tell them, they're going to be really mad that we didn't think that they were capable of handling the truth. And if we wait to tell them until 11th or 12th grade, well, you know, by then it'll be too late just because of the, you know, sort of vicious math of grade point averages to, to really pull themselves up if they've um, slacked off or chosen to do other things the first couple of years. And so, I, you know, I just sort of feel like we have to tell them. Ron Lieber's new book is The Price You Pay for College. Uh, Ron, a great information. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, you've been making the rounds of media here the last couple of days. We appreciate you making time for us today. We wish you a continued success with the book. And uh, I plan on reading this a, a couple of times as I, I plan for 11 years down the road. Excellent. Well, I appreciate your interest. Ron Lieber talking with us about his new book, The Price You Pay for College. You've been through that experience, Carrie. I, I still have it in front of me, and uh, there are no easy answers there. Just more questions. Yeah, there are no easy answers. I think probably the best thing to do or, or the best way to approach it and is something that he did talk, Ron did talk about, is, you know, look at all the options and, and everything that you can use, you know, scholarships, discounts, s start saving early, all of that stuff to, if you want to really approach it. I like how we talked about, it's like buying a car. There's a list price. Mm. There's the actual price you pay. And yes, indeed. You absolutely can, can do a little dickering there. Don't, don't just accept what you see on the sticker when it comes to an investment that's, that's likely to be well into six figures.
yeah, you have to weigh your options and, and you have to, and you know, the maybe the hardest thing is to keep in mind what your degree is in and, and budget accordingly. Yeah. Like how many years in this, in this line of work will it take you to recoup that? Exactly. Like if you're going into radio, well, don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks to Ron Lieber and Annie Jacobson for joining us this week. Thanks to you for being with us as well. We'll catch you next time right here on Downtown, the podcast. Oh,